Peter Fonda's character Henry. begins. Pardon? Henry Fonda. Oh shit, Henry Fonda. I can't say anyone. Who the hell? Who's Peter Fonda? The son of Henry Fonda. Ah, uh, Jane Henry Fonda's Fonda. brother. I quit. Uh, Henry, this is why we need Patreon so that I can live my life. There will be spoilers, 100 films, 100 podcasts. I am Matt Bazell. Guilty! Guilty! In your juror number 1 through 7 and 8 through 12 <laughs> at any point in the movie. Yes, call me 7. No, you are in fact who? Ethan Knight. Ethan Knight. Welcome back. This is episode 14, the film we had watched, and what Ethan was alluding to was 12 Angry Men, 1957. Jesus Christ, we've already done 14 of these things. I know. Rundown's coming up next. Oh, my God. 14 means this is number 87 on AFI's top 100 list. And it was kind of a short one. An hour and 35. Very pleasant. It's probably the shortest film we've watched. <laughs> yeah, thus far. I mean, we started out with Ben-Hur, which is three hours. And now here we are. Also, we've had a couple developments in the last two weeks that we've, I was going to say, seen everyone. But... Since we have last heard you, or last you heard us. Since they last heard us. Yeah. Since you last heard us, we have launched our Patreon. Patreon. For those of you who don't know, Patreon is a place where you can go and support creative artists like ourselves. Reason being is that it's actually a little expensive for us to put these things together. There's an investment of time, and we got to buy the films, or rent them rather. We have to license our music and pay for storage on SoundCloud to host our podcast episodes. And, of course, my, my daily beer allowance. Uh, no money really will go important. to Ethan's <laughs> daily beer allowance. What we are asking for, however, is people to support us to allow this thing to keep going, but we're not asking you to do that for free. Instead, what we were thinking of doing and have, in fact, begun to implement is every other week. So when we're not doing our quote-unquote canonical episodes of AFI's Top 100 Films, we are doing movies that are currently out on things like Redbox. Maybe we'll do our favorites at some point. Yes, I'm, I'm pushing for my favorites. Yeah, and maybe down the line people can commission podcasts where you can sponsor yes. a podcast episode. And you can make us watch whatever you want. We already have an episode up, so if you go to Patreon and you support us, you become a patron of the arts, is the tier that that arrives at, you will get our first episode, which is called, well, it's not called anything, it's of the film Arrival, <laughs> 2016's Arrival. Yes, because we have just arrived. Matt, now, if I wanted to support us, let's say I'm some person out there who really just can't get enough of my silky sweet voice. Which, that, that's just me. I can't get enough of my own goddamn voice. But let's say I wanted to support us. How much money would I have to spend? We're asking for $5 a month, which I know may seem like a lot to some people, or it may seem shockingly low to other people. But it's an amount that if we get a couple people to do that, we can cover our costs and continue to make this for you. And we're more than happy to do so if you can help us out a little bit. But yeah, so the low cost of $5 a month. We'll get you there. You'll get all the bonus content, anything else we decide to put out, in addition to all of our free stuff, which you have here, 
through your iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to your podcast from. Yes. So if you cannot get enough spoilers, that $5 a month is going to get you two extra episodes. And they're grab bags. You're going to get all sorts of fun shit. You're going to get a rival, new stuff, older stuff, all sorts of fun things. Right. So I guess if you want to break it down into a value proposition, you get two extra episodes. That's roughly an hour to an hour and a half worth of content per month. And that is for $5. So uh, I don't know math or anything, but that seems pretty good if you ask me. Yes. And you help us keep the lights on, yes. which is a serious problem, especially for me. Literally, <laughs> my, my lights are off right now as I'm recording. It's, it's very disorienting. I need help to pay for I, I spent all my money on, on watching Arrival and 12 Angry Men. So <laughs> I haven't, haven't got lights this week. No, I'm just kidding. But still, it would be very good. Uh, we'd greatly appreciate it if you do that for us. But we'll take no more of your time. If you don't feel like it, that's fine. We are happy to do this episode for you, which, as I mentioned, 1957's 12 Angry Men. 12 Angry Men. Why don't you give us a plot synopsis? All right, Matt. Now, I'm, now this is a disclaimer. This is perhaps the most concise summary I have ever done for this podcast because it's just how I feel about this. 12 Angry Men is the story of 12 Angry Men. No, I'm just fucking with you. It's I not was like, short. whoa, okay. <laughs> no, <laughs> it is, it's short though. 12 Angry Men is the story of a jury that is tasked with delivering a verdict on a young man's murder trial, as juries are wont to do. They must all agree one way or the other, but a guilty verdict ensures the death penalty for this young man. Henry Fonda's character begins by voting not guilty, and by using logic, rhetoric, and discussion, slowly convinces each of the other 11 jurors to vote not guilty, despite their best efforts yeah so that's pretty concise once i edited out all of your mistakes <laughs> but be that as it may it's an hour and a half lots of stuff goes on it's actually a very watchable film sometimes i get up and i walk around and i come back to it but this i sat down and watched pretty much all the way through because i was really interested in the plot and the developments of henry fonda's character juror number eight going through and you know making these arguments to convince people, not even to convince, to, it's almost in a Socratic way, right? To try to get people to come to the realization that there is probable doubt. They're not saying that he's innocent, right? He's just that they they don't have enough evidence to convict him. It's funny that you say that, though, that this was the film that you didn't get up and walk around with. This is the film I most, like, wandered. Because you can basically, this film would function well as a podcast, this film would function just fine as a radio drama. Well, it was a teleplay originally, and it was the script was largely untouched. Exactly. I mean, it began as a as a teleplay. It's been. It's. I mean, it's a staple of community theater. So it's it's something that's been adapted and adapted and adapted. And of course, it's really only in one room. I think I read that three minutes of the film take place not in the same room. That's right. Yeah, I got the same bit of trivia from IMDb and Amazon's little trivia x-ray service. Yeah, and so this is something that you really honestly don't really need to take that great of a look at. You don't need to watch it. I mean, you should listen, but you don't really need to watch. And as an extension of that, the plot is not something that you can't really ascertain till the end. It's something that very early on, you know, okay, slowly, one by one, people are going to change their verdict of guilty to not guilty. Mm-hmm. They are going to divest themselves of prejudices or presumptions and assumptions about this case, about the boy on trial, he's only 18, and come to the realization they don't actually 
have enough evidence. They ha they have a not beyond a shadow of a doubt. They have reasonable doubt to not convict him. Yeah, I mean, this what's interesting about this film is that it is not I mean, this is not the sixth sense, right? This is a film that the plot you like you said is pretty laid out for for viewers and really what it sort of asks viewers to do is is be introspective right like it, it and it does so also through sort of the the shots the the visual rhetoric of it in that we get a lot of very close very very close close-ups or over the shoulder shots and you get a lot of characters talking if not directly to the camera they're talking like directly adjacent to the camera, but they're basically talking to the audience, right? Really, this film asks you as an audience member to think about your assumptions and your prejudices. To think about your biases and prejudices and try to similarly divest yourself of them like the characters in this film do. Each exactly. character represents a different aspect of an individual. In this case, it's men, right? It's 1957. Mm -hmm. These 12 jurors each have a different job or profession to name a few there is an architect there is a stockbroker there's an the ad man there's the admin there's also the assistant head coach for football right mm -hmm. and all of them are tasked with becoming better people at least for the couple of hours that they're locked in this room together yeah, what, what's really interesting is that this is a really sort of, I would like to call it forward thinking, but I don't know that everyone would agree with me, uh, but it's a very sort of like liberal leftist view of the world, right? Certainly for the time, 1957. Especially for the time. And, you know, I've seen this movie a couple of times before in high school and maybe once in college. I don't know. I'm sure I read it in college because, you know, I was a theater major. And I'm, I probably have seen at least one theater production of it, you know, community theater or otherwise. But watching this again in 2017 really reminded me how really sort of progressive it, it appears for the 50s, or I guess the late 50s. It also might illustrate, if you take the pessimist or the realist, depending on how much of a pessimist you are, right. route of saying also how, how little distance we've made how much ground we've gained since then really yeah i still absolutely making these thought of that yeah and i mean we can see this in political rhetoric right now why don't we go to the themes because i think we'll better dig into this film because this film is really just a manifestation of themes in a lot of ways that i mean i think that's an excellent way to put this film is a manifestation of themes and it sort of ostensibly feels like a realist sort of world but it's really not it's it's highly stylized and highly symbolic and really doesn't buy into sort of conventions of realism throughout that so I, so I like that but yeah let me let me toss out a couple of things here I think the first one that gets grappled with right is this idea of reason versus emotion or reason over emotion right this is the enlightenment personified yes. in that we can reason anything out Despite yep. the the amount of biases, prejudices, and overarching emotions and controlling emotions, and we know at the very end of the plot, the last juror finally collapses and says not guilty, and we had already suspected this, but we can fully come to the realization that the reason he was holding out was because of his troubled relationship with his own son, mm -hmm. and so he has this cathartic moment which he realizes is fault and lets it go, but in reality, with that happen i don't know there's a lot of problem with reason above all thinking because mm -hmm. we're humans we're flawed which this film also very much contributes to the idea that we are in fact flawed it says though that we can 
work our way out of it in some extent. Not that we can be perfect of them, but we can at least work out certain things like this in the court of justice, justice capital J as an ideal. We can live up to that ideal. Well, I mean, I think you're right. Like it's not, it's, I mean, boiling it down to a little nugget of reason versus emotion or reason over emotion is misleading because emotion and, and really pathos in general plays an important part in convincing some of the jurors. Right. But I think sort of, more so than that, it, it is, you know, it is that very enlightenment way of thinking of, like, if I can rhetorically grapple with these people, they'll they'll come around. Right, and he doesn't—this is juror number eight. This is Fonda's character. Yeah, Fonda. He doesn't really start with this in mind. He just says, listen, I've got some doubts. I want to mm-hmm. hear arguments. And they present their arguments, and it's very clear from the word go that a lot of these arguments are fundamentally flawed. They rely on yes. things like, well, the lawyer laid it out, and this person swore in a court of law, so it has to be true. And right. they don't really entertain doubts. And then slowly but surely, more and more people entertain doubts. And that's catalyzed not only by Fonda's rhetoric and his appeal to reason, but also other characters' flaws. So yeah. one of the first people to turn around completely and say, I think he's not guilty was due to Ed Beagley's character being incredibly racist. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's one of the critical moments in the story itself when he goes off again in this long tirade about those people, which is never right. named, but it's clearly talking about slums in New York yeah, City. Yeah, I mean, well, and, and what I think is really interesting is that the film, I hate to put it this way because it sounds like I'm praising it, but it very deftly... Uh, sort of maneuvers around race without saying, because it really is about slums, right? It's about class on a very important level. But that first shot of the young man who is, you know, on trial, he is clearly like Italian or something. Right. And the juror that takes umbrage with Ed Bigley's racist remarks is also one that grew up in the slums. Is pretty... Mm -hmm. Clearly marked as Italian. I wouldn't say he is Italian, but he's marked as Italian. For yeah. The if anything, they're 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 not they're they're not Aryan. I guess is the way. If I to pull to use a little Nazism here. <laughs> sure, that's always advisable. I mean, but like, but right, like there's certainly there's a racially marked otherness here. That I mean, I, I, they're not black people, right? But they're also not white or I you know they, they he they, these guys could we could think of them as maybe Jewish and there is the immigrant guy who seems to be maybe uh, Spanish or German or something like that and he's a watchmaker yeah so I would think German is a watchmaker but he kind of has his accent I think is hard to place I think he's probably few... Spanish or, or somewhere along that um, southern European yeah I mean I if like I said I initially thought sort of German because he kind of reminded me of Walt Disney. <laughs> but then there's certain things he said, I, I thought maybe Spain or Greek or something. I don't know. What was really interesting is that this film takes place in New York City on what is supposed to be the hottest day in New York City. Mm-hmm. And what does that sound like to you if not do the right thing? Took oh, place on the right. hottest day in New York. And that was oh, shit. very clearly about race as well. So maybe Spike uh. Lee got a little bit of inspiration or was calling that into play again 
So I noticed that and thought, oh. God damn, I knew something was up with that because the first thing I wrote down was, well, I guess the second thing I wrote down after that it was a 1957 adaptation of a teleplay. I wrote down the quote, the hot, it's the hottest day of the year. So I knew there was something there. I just needed you to tell me what it was. Which I think we can play <laughs> that into themes if, as it was in Do the Right Thing. That was yeah. the catalyst for violence, right? That everything simmering beneath the surface mm-hmm. of the individual, once it once it's the hottest day, that stuff's brought out, right? So the base and violent nature of man is brought out. In this case, it's not nearly as violent. There's still violence inside that room with the jurors as well. But yeah. it's more about their prejudices and their biases. They come out then. And 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 also, you know, this is uh, like I was talking about earlier. How this film, again, ostensibly feels realist, but in a way, really is not. The weather, in a very sort of I don't know, romantic way, the capital R romantic reflects nature, reflects the struggles of humans. So for most of the film, right, they're all sweating. It gets hotter and hotter and hotter. The fan doesn't work. And then when we hit what i would argue is the you know the theatrical climax which is the this when they finally vote six six they're half and half almost immediately afterwards it starts to rain right all the tension that builds and builds and builds and builds we hit to this climax where all of a sudden wow everybody is you know we're split we're completely split we could go either way and then the denouement happens with the rain right well it's not even a danger that they'll be split it's that they'll be a hung jury right and they'll get or, a yeah jury. exactly they won't be as introspective and this guy will surely give it some the electric chair but to carry that forward some more it gets dark they have to turn on the lights then the fan mm. works they might it's on the same breaker or something and then it starts to rain which is almost like the catharsis of the climax and then yes. the sun comes out again everyone goes out goes on about their day as the rain clears but yeah you're right the the actual climate represents the struggle of these individuals which carries forward mm-hmm. that idea that spike lee takes up and do the right thing but ethan do you have another uh, another theme for us that we can tackle yeah um i really want to think about the theme of empathy and how empathy works in this film because i think this is a really important thing that carries through to today and the way we think about the justice system today because part of the problem i think at the beginning is that many of these jurors objectify the boy. We never get his name, but the... The, 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 the defendant. Defendant, yeah, the, the defendant. And it's only through these different modes of empathy, right, where, like, for example, with the juror who wears the glasses. I don't know any of the numbers or the names or whatever. He's the, but the, he's the broker. The broker, yeah. And they he has a line early on, or I guess maybe it's not that early, but he says, you know, I don't sweat. And it takes his discussion with Fonda, where Fonda's like, well, what movie did you see on Monday? Where he's challenging his memory. Yeah, and he challenges him, and, and all of a sudden, you know, that isn't even necessarily his catalyst right at that moment, but he comes around, right? It's clearly planting the seeds of doubt. Like, if you can imagine yourself as the boy... Exactly. And not even that, if you can imagine yourself in a circumstance that you're unfamiliar with. Have mm-hmm. you ever been in emotional stress? Yes, but not to the degree to which where your father was lying dead on the floor right. while the police were questioning you. So right. he, he's empathizing, but he can't ever get to that point of actual experience. And and we see that with other jurors as well, right? For, for example, at the very end, you know, the antagonist juror 
it, it takes his sort of like admission that he's dealing with his own son's, I don't know, delinquence or estrangement only until he can see the boy here or, or see the boy's father-son relationship as one that relates to his father-son relationship in an empathetic way or a sympathetic way. Does he come around? Yeah, and this is Lee Cobb's character you're talking about. Yes, who is yeah. just pretty deplorable throughout the film because he's wrong-headed and stubborn and those are two very hard things to disabuse someone of if they're enjoined together but it is that yeah. cathartic break when he empathizes with the defendant through his own son and that's actually what finally seals them and allows them to have come to the light so to speak mm-hmm. in terms of reasonable doubt and you know whether the actual innocence of this defendant is true or not it's never gotten to and that's not the point the point is that we have a justice system that is built democratically at least on the level of the jurors and this is all in theory mm-hmm. that it needs to be executed upon right there needs to be a certain respect for that and there needs to yeah. be a way that goes down and that's highlighted at the beginning of the film when the foreman sort of abandons his post because people are being mean to him basically <laughs> yeah So that actually takes us to our pivotal scene because I saw this, and this was in our spoiler audio last time. It's the Mm -hmm. this is not a game scene. The Lee Cobb's character and then the the, the ad man, the the madman guy, are playing uh, tic-tac-toe in front of the board foreman. Oh, yeah. As Fonda is trying to put out salient facts about this case. And he walks over and tears up their stuff and says this isn't a game. So let's go ahead and take a listen to that, and we'll come back. All right, here we go. Okay, now let's let's get down to business. Now, who wants to start it off? I would. Okay, go. You down there. The old man who lived downstairs says he heard the kid yell out, "I'm going to kill you." Second later, he heard the body hit the floor. Now he ran to the door and he saw the kid running down the stairs and out of the house. What does that mean to you? Well, I was wondering how clearly the old man could have heard the boy's voice through the ceiling. Didn't hear it through the ceiling. The window was open. So was the one upstairs. It was a hot night, remember? It was another apartment. It's not that easy to identify a voice, particularly a he shouting identified voice. identified it in court. That's right. And don't forget the lady across the street. She looked right in the open window and saw the boy stab his father. Now, I mean, isn't that enough for you? No, it isn't. Boy, how do you like this guy, huh? It's like talking into a dead phone. She said she saw the killing through the windows of a moving elevated train. There were six cars on the train. She saw the killing through the last two cars. She remembered the most insignificant details. I don't see how you can argue with that. Has anybody here any idea how long it would take an elf? This isn't a game. Did you see him? Hey. The nerve. All right, listen. The hey, absolute nerve. All right, forget Look, it. It's not important. This isn't I mean. a game. No, no, it come down. Who does he it's think he is? All right, I'm Look, telling you. Don't forget it, Louse. Has anybody any idea how long it takes an elevator train going at medium speed to pass a given point? Okay, so it's a very tense scene, and this is, I think, one of the first moments that Fonda's character and Lee Cobb's character actually come to you know, opposition, where who does this guy think he is? This is mm-hmm. pointless. Nothing's being done here. But it's not a game. This happens fairly early on, about 30 or 40 minutes into the film, and it's important because there's always the language of the game continuing. Even their juror 
opposed against, right, guilty, not guilty, is read as a score in a lot of times. And the assistant head coach talks about a game, a football game, which the rain came down, and they were moving down the field and everything got stymied, right, literally. And Mm -hmm. this is when they're at the 6-6 impasse, so to speak. You know, and that's such an interesting way to really think about this as as sort of a game or even an intellectual game, right? But because there's even a visual moment where we see the there's like a legal pad or something when they're reading the guilty, not guilty verdicts when they do the secret vote at the beginning and it's broken up like a scoreboard. Right. And this is the guy who's actually keeping score is an assistant head coach for a football team. Yeah. This is disabused, however. When the watchmaker, when it's the salesman, the guy who always wears the hat and wants mm. to get to his baseball game, when he says, okay, fine, not guilty, because he's, he's swung because he thinks it'll be quicker if he says he's not guilty for them to get out of there. Right. And the watchmaker says, you can't do that. You have to actually believe these things. We have to take the system seriously. Mm. And then whether or not that character ever actually comes around is one thing, because once they leave, the first thing he does is look at his watch to try to make to his his uh, his baseball game. So, yeah, there is something really interesting about the way that I think just Americans in general conceptualize what it means to be on a jury because there is this sort of trope that jury duty is terrible and no one wants to do it. And when we were at A and M together, I got called to jury duty like two or three times, and of course I was like, "Yo, I teach." three times a week and I'm taking three classes I cannot miss two weeks of my life and plus they wouldn't take me anyway uh, because you know they don't it, all you've got to do is go in and say you're an academic and they're like nope thank you yes please leave you've seen 12 hungry men <laughs> right exactly there is something about like not wanting to take part in this when in reality I mean in in the sort of concept or I guess not reality in the conceptual understanding of this, a jury really is supposed to be 12 people that are your peers that are there to sort of give you an impartial thing and not be concerned about like getting out of there to see the baseball game. But that clashes with reality because it's a hassle to be on jury duty. It's a hassle, but it's also an abandonment of a civic responsibility. Yes. And we keep ceding responsibility to people, whether it's the police force or our government, and then we get angry when we think they're overstepping, even though we've handed it to them on a silver plate. But yes, I want absolutely. to get to our thesis because you have perfectly set me up for mine. Oh, good. Then spill it. My thesis is as follows. Though we humans are flawed, our quest for the truth should continue always. This process will necessarily be painful, however, because like you mentioned, there's that clash between conception, the ideal, and reality, mm-hmm. which is the flawed nature or fallen nature, depending on if you're secular or religious. And mm-hmm. I think since both systems, secular and religious, have an accounting for that, we might be a little bit closer to the reality of things with that. We should always be searching for that capital G truth, which sort of dovetails with capital J justice. Mm-hmm. But it's so hard. And this movie is so optimistic in that sense because they do get to it. Yeah. But I can't, every time, at the end of this, I still thought, there's no way this would happen. There's just no way. No, there's not. Because it's it's representational. It's not, it's idealized. It's not realism, even. And and one of the things I really thought about, you know, the, the political climate of today, and maybe, I'll, you know what, if we haven't outed ourselves already is fairly liberal, I'm going to out myself. The political climate today is is just a strange place to be in. 
And so all of these sort of things, I think about like Parks and Recreation in particular, just because I've been rewatching a lot of that. But but this film too, we, we think about the way the justice system works right now, which is maybe not a lot of capital J justice. And the way people treat facts and reason and evidence. This is 1957, and the justice system is still broken, if not more broken. Well, here's right? a lecture I gave to my class, my introductory English class this last week. Mm. We're talking about crime and criminality, and I asked them a couple of questions. What is justice? And I had it capitalized. What is crime? What is our criminal system? We sort of mingled justice and crime, and I said, listen, we don't actually have a justice system. We have a criminal system. We have a punitive mm. system that is enmeshed with capitalism one of the biggest punishments you get is a fine right or actual imprisonment but we're not really interested in capital j justice because it's an ideal it may not exist in reality you can't point me to justice just like you can't point to me a triangle because no perfectly equal and line lines don't exist in nature because everything has depth in reality to it that's an idea, that's a form, right? It's an Aristotelian right. form. It doesn't actually exist in nature. Justice yes, also. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Justice. Thinking of justice as something that is is an ideal that we reach towards. But justice is, it's very subjective, right? And I mean, this idea that they kind of grapple with that, you know, this kid is supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. And uh, Fonda's character has a little monologue about this, about how, like, he doesn't owe us anything. We owe him everything in the, the the burden of the work falls upon the jury and the and the prosecution not the defendant right because this is this is triggered by one of the jurors saying look his attorney didn't prove that he was innocent and he says he doesn't have to and and this is a problem we still have this is why shit like making a murderer on Netflix or serial the podcast if like I'm sorry if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't listened to serial then what are you doing with your life and and there I mean this this all of this sort of true crime that that people People love, you know, we we see this issue come up again and again and again. That mm-hmm. the we forget that the burden, you know, this we forget that it's the burden of proof falls on the on the prosecution, right? That everyone is innocent until proven guilty, and that and that's a hard concept. It's hard. Democracy is hard. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Hey, why don't you give us your thesis? We can start. Yeah, getting I should to our do three that. Questions. Yes. So my thesis is this. I think that this film says that if you use logic, rhetoric, and critical thinking, you can convince even the most stalwart opponents to agree with you. Right. So we both have this optimistic reading of this film, which I think is very, I think it's just true, right? This film has an optimistic Mm -hmm. view of humanity and the idealized form of attending to justice, right? Maybe Mm -hmm. we can't reach it. Humans themselves are flawed. Human perfectibility may not be able to be a thing, but it does not mean we can't continue to reach for it. Yeah. So there is a worthwhile endeavor in attempting justice, in attempting to have this enlightenment, reasoning, and using rhetoric for good as opposed to evil. (laughs) So why don't we get to our three questions? Yeah. And the first, as always, is do we care about this film? Yeah, I think so. Again, as someone who has studied the theater... Sorry, the theater, you mean. The theater. The theater. Now, when you spell that out, it's with an R-E, not an E-R. Like I'm some kind of simpleton or plebeian. (laughs) So, right, as someone who studied a lot of theater, this this is a 
film that gets widely adapted. You know, it's a staple of community theater because I think it does grapple with some seriously American issues, things that we still grapple with. I also think that we that we care about this film because the issues that it raises are issues we continue to deal with. I mean, how many I've said this a thousand different times a thousand different ways, maybe not maybe just like two different ways this entire podcast, but I mean like we still see people approach crimes the same way today. Right. I agree. We definitely have to care about this film. If nothing else, it is a reminder that we are flawed and there are problems within our democratic justice system that need to be yeah. continually addressed. These things don't get put to bed. You have to remain vigilant all the time. Yeah, I mean, and I think maybe what this, in a larger sense, says is that democracy and this sort of American, I don't know, ethos or the American, like, ideology. Ideal, yeah, ideology is something that never stops you cannot rest on your laurels Well, democracy is is messy it's not efficient it is the least efficient government a tyranny is probably the most efficient but democracy at least makes the attempt of accounting for everyone and the more we go further and further in the future we hope we'll account for more everyone's right we get at the beginning the american conception is just landed white men and we slowly try to make that more and more inclusive but there's always gonna be opposition yeah so let's go to number two and what do we owe this film? What we owe this film, it it just seems hard to think about any sort of courtroom drama without some small reference to this because it's it just saturates everything. Like I said, it's been adapted a bajillion, trillion, million, trillion, billion, gillion, million, jillion times. If you have never heard of 12 Angry Men, you must be living under a rock. Well, you're at least right? familiar with the concept, probably. Yeah, so I think what we owe this, I mean, just the fact that this gets shown in high schools all the time or put on by high schools in their theater departments or whatever, it influence, it's certainly influenced generations of people. So we have to, we, we owe it some sort of, underst- sort of maybe a general consciousness of the justice system. I don't know. Sure. I think it's not wholly responsible for it because we do have a film that's also on this list, which is To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, Mm. which is earlier. But this film definitely is less sentimental about what To Kill a Mockingbird, that that court drama is about. This one is more about reason. And so I think it does shine a new light on it and it is maybe responsible for making it a little more modern. And of course there are more current examples today but they wouldn't be anywhere without at least these two films yeah i mean that that's not to say that this is the the sort of very first instantiation of this thing but it it's one of the ones that is very obviously a cultural touchstone it's been remade just as a film i think three times and as a television deal again another like three times something like that i i think it when we get to to kill a mockingbird it will sort of sit up there with it right absolutely so let's get to our last question and does this hold up it doesn't not hold up that's a great we really committed to your answer there ethan when we start then because (laughs) i think this movie definitely holds up because what doesn't hold about it it is filmed in a single room for the most part there's not special effects nothing like that it's people talking to one another and like you said you don't even really need the visuals of it Though yeah. there are still smart camera angles and positioning that are important to give you sort of some insight into how the film's going to play out or some different themes that are lying underneath. 
the drama. And so I think that's important, but it's all very modern in that sense. There's not a whole lot that I would take it a task for. And I'm thinking in terms of modern criticism as opposed to modern spectacle where sure no one is Mm -hmm. jumping out of an exploding building or something like that but the fact that it takes place in this one spot and still held my interest i think that's very good i think that speaks in its favor i guess my my biggest issue with it holding up really comes down to the visual level because i i agree with everything you've said i think as a script outside of the fact that it's all white men which many adapt adaptations uh deal with by just casting it as women or casting people of color well they were supposed to have michelle pfeiffer in one of the reboots yeah but i hate to break it to you ethan but hollywood is still very whitewashed in a lot of ways well right i yeah aside from sort of that just this the visual stuff i mean it feels like a television show in a lot of ways like yes there are some smart camera angles and some smart movements of the camera and some smart maison-scene stuff at the same time some of it 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 feels how do i want to put this lazy is not the right word but just perhaps not inspired well what you say not inspired i'll say spartan yeah very spartan i mean that's a nice way to say it very spartan and very it almost feels like some of the staging is soap opera-esque that is it doesn't the tone of some of the visual stuff doesn't feel to me to quite match the tone of the script Mm, i don't know about that but this might be a point where we have to agree to disagree not since pulp fiction have you and i had such a Mm, disagreement but that's okay right we're allowed to do this yes and i would argue to my last one my last little point is that some of the acting i wouldn't call it bad but it's it's maybe some of this comes down to the fact that i don't think that this film engages in realism it engages in something else well it's almost a morality play yeah i mean it absolutely is a morality play and so like there are some lines that when they're delivered feel very sort of like or these long some of these monologues feel very like you no one talks like that and i think maybe but where do you deliver a monologue if not in a juror's room when you're actually invested in the truth right i think that's the perfect place for it and i don't think they're not just sitting on a park bench talking about existential nothingness or something like they're in a staked environment right there are stakes here yeah you're right but again, I, I don't know that I love all of the acting. The, I guess maybe just the delivery. So does it hold up? Overall, probably yes. This particular instantiation of this this script, I think some people may take issue with it because it does not fit. In the end, I think it does just fine. Well, you, you've heard it, Ethan, with the last words. I think 12 Angry Men <laughs> does just fine. <laughs> I think we'll put it to bed there. Before we leave you, we want to let you know what our next film is, and that's going to be Platoon. Platoon. I know. We're jumping into... This is Vietnam, right? Vietnam, yep. I have seen this film before. I have... Of course you have. Well, I wrote my thesis on Vietnam stuff, so of course I have, but I'm looking forward to to watching it again with a more critical eye. I think when I had watched it, I was younger, maybe 16, (laughs) and I'd just seen it as, like, action movie good, right? So Mm -hmm. I haven't viewed this film critically looking forward to talking about it but also next time we will have the third installment of the rundown (gasps) and it's gonna get the more difficult from here on out every time adding five more films with original 
scripts in terms of giving new <laughs> brief synopsis or theses about these films. And by the time we get a little bit further, it's going to get worse and worse. But that's you we know what? Suffer at one for point, you, we're going to have to do a hundred films. We're going to do a hundred film rundown at one point. Yeah, it'll be as long as some of our episodes. Jesus Christ! We better uh, better rest up now. I know. So with that, I think we'll call it a day. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. Looking forward to having you back for the next one. But until then, there will be spoilers. There will be spoilers. There Will Be Spoilers was hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. We were produced by Matt Bazell. Our music is by the enigmatic Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find his music all over the internet and Google him. Our artwork was by Becca Knight. You can follow her on Twitter at Becca the Knight with a K, or you can find her website at nightdraws.com. You can follow us on Twitter at SpoilersCast. You can follow us on Facebook at There Will Be Spoilers. And you can shoot us an email if you want at spoilerscast at gmail.com. We plan on answering emails on our off-week podcast, so be sure to send in your questions or comments. And finally, please remember to subscribe to us on iTunes and or SoundCloud. Review us, please. Thanks for listening. Hey, white boy, what you waiting for? That hole ain't gonna dig itself. Come on, boy, get your dick skin on that thing. Dig! We can get all day. Dig, dig. Somebody once wrote, hell is the impossibility of reason. What the fuck's the matter with you? I wasn't going to hurt you. Looked like I was going to fucking hurt you. Why didn't you listen to me, huh? Why? Why didn't you fucking listen to me? Fucking stupid. You stupid asshole. Somebody get the fuck up here. Come here, motherfucker. Why are you smiling? Huh? Why the fuck didn't you listen to me? Do him, man. Do him. What are you smiling at, huh? You want something to smile at, huh? You want something to smile at? Motherfucker! Motherfucker! What happened today is just the beginning. We're gonna lose this war.